Braden, can you do me a favor and go grab one of the question sheets from the back table? Thank you, appreciate it. I just grab one of those before the service. There's a couple things I wanted to highlight for you from it, so. So we're coming now down to the end of the book of Genesis. And uh, we've spent a good amount of time here on this book. Hopefully it's been a profitable study for you and an opportunity to see how God has been working in the course of the whole book. Thank you. And as we come now to the end of the book, what I want to do this morning is both highlight some of the things from chapters 49 and 50 that we didn't look at last week, and sort of do a summary and overview of the book of Genesis, because, and I'm sure this is probably true for you as it is for me, when you first set out reading a book of the Bible, you have maybe particular ideas about it, and then after you've worked through it for a period of time, there's things hopefully that we see that we didn't see the first time through or in anticipation of it, and so just want to have opportunity to sort of look over those things together. And so we come here specifically to these blessings that Jacob is giving to his sons. Jacob is now Israel. He's giving blessings to his sons at the end of his life. And as we think about broadly the whole book of Genesis, we try to think about what is the major theme, what are the major themes of the book of Genesis. Certainly this idea of blessing, I think, is something that we see consistently throughout the book. There's a particular commentary that I've looked at some in the course of preparing for the messages, and I think that the title of it, if I remember correctly, is something like Creation and Blessing. But in reality, God's creating the world is not disconnected from God's blessing the world through Abraham. We just don't see it laid out in quite the same way until we come to Genesis chapter 12, right? So we see a, a pattern. God does something good for the world that he's made. And then there's sin, and then God shows grace in various forms as we proceed through the book. So think very, way back to the very beginning of the book. God makes the world. Everything is perfect. Everything is very good. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobey God. They listen to the voice of the serpent. They eat of the fruit of the tree that God said not to. Sin comes into the world. God shows them grace, ironically, by pushing them out of the garden. You say, well, how is that God showing grace to them? Because if God had left them in the garden and they lived perpetually eating of the tree of life in their sinful state that would not be a blessing from God, right? So God shows grace by expelling them from the garden, but he doesn't abandon them. He gives them children. Those children grow up. One child kills another child. Sin enters in again. God shows grace, gives them their son Seth. And all of these things are tied in with this promise that he made in Genesis 3.15 that there is one who's going to destroy the works of the devil. The seed of the serpent is not going to prevail over the seed of the woman, but God is going to eventually keep unfolding his promises and deliver his people from their sin. So we come to Noah. We think, maybe Noah, maybe he's the one. And Noah does build the ark. Noah, as the New Testament says, does preach righteousness. Noah gets off the, off the ark, gets drunk, disgraces himself, and we realize he's not the one. 
that God has sent to be the fulfillment of this promise that He's made. But God shows grace in the establishing of human government. He shows grace in response to the sin of the people uh, who are trying to build this tower to heaven by confusing their languages so that they would not persist in their pride and think that they had won against God. He confuses their languages. And then we come to Abraham. And God makes his blessing very clear. Abraham, in you and your descendants, there will be a number of promises that I will fulfill. There will be this idea of offspring. There will be this idea of land. There will be this idea of you and your family being a conduit of blessing to all the nations of the earth. There will be my work in, in your people that I'm going to, Genesis 15, bring them down to the land of Egypt to preserve life, and then I'm going to bring them back to the land of Canaan when the time of the sin of the Canaanites is fulfilled so that they may repossess the land and execute my judgment upon the Canaanites. All of these things are in the first 15, 16 chapters of Genesis, and then we see the unfolding of the lives of Abraham's family. Abraham is described in the book of Romans as one who comes to God by faith, as a model of faith for those who would continue to trust God after him, as the father of faith for all those who come to God through faith, and yet not one who is perfect. Abraham had periods of doubt, taking Hagar to become the father of Ishmael. He was not expressing faith in God at that point, lying about Sarah, because he was concerned and fearful of the people around him, Pharaoh, and then later the, one of the kings of the Canaanites, was not expressing faith in God. And yet the, the broad perspective of his life was a life of faith. And so despite his sin, God's blessing prevails, and God continues to show grace to him and to his family. And then we came to Isaac, and God blessed Isaac. God blessed Isaac in some ways by teaching him patience, much like he had done with Abraham. Isaac had to wait 20 years before he had children. And then there was the sin of Jacob in deceiving his father. And yet God showed grace and accomplished his purpose despite this. And he sends Jacob to find a wife from the family of Laban. And in the process of those more than 20 years that Jacob is serving his uncle for his wives, for his flocks. The whole time that he's there, God is working on him and developing and changing his character as well. And so we have the reality that, again, God's blessing and his purpose continues to prevail in the lives of Abraham's descendants. Most recently, we've been looking at the family of Joseph. Joseph, who's a 17-year-old kid, and his brothers hate him because of his dreams, and his father doesn't know whether to really entirely believe the content of the dreams that he's, pro he's proclaimed, and then he disappears. His father thinks he's, he's dead. His brothers know that they've sold him to Egypt, but they don't know what happens of him. They assume that he's probably dead. God unfolds all of these events in the, lives of jo in the life of Joseph, and then we have that scene of reconciliation and deliverance, and God's blessing, and all these other sorts of things, which we'll talk more about when we get into chapter 50. But given all of that context, we have Jacob's words of 
blessing and we could say cursing toward his sons. We saw first Reuben. We get glimpses of Reuben. He's the actual firstborn, the one who should inherit from his father, Jacob, now Israel. And yet, in what seems to have been a foolish attempt to secure his position in the family, he went and took his father's concubine, the maidservant of Rachel, his father's favorite wife, and he took advantage of her and defiled her, and Jacob heard of it, and we almost have the impression maybe Jacob has forgotten about it. But then we come to this few verses, almost at the very end of the book of Genesis, and we see that Jacob has not forgotten about it. And he basically says, Reuben, you're not going to receive the birthright because of what you did. Again, God had caused Reuben to be the firstborn. His birth was a blessing to his mother Leah, who was not loved by her husband Jacob because of his sinful favoritism. And yet out of the context of his privileged position, he makes a sinful choice. But God shows grace to him. Though he loses his position as the firstborn, though he does not have the respect that he had desired from his father, he is not expelled from the tribes of Israel. He will still receive blessing along with the rest of the tribes of Israel. And so God has not forgotten him. That doesn't excuse what he did. Clearly it's sin. But God did not do everything that he could have done in response to his sin in terms of, you know, completely wiping him out. We didn't read verses 5 through 7, but there's a similar sort of idea there, and perhaps even more so than Reuben. Simeon and Levi, if you recall the incident, uh, about halfway through the book of Genesis, two-thirds of the way through the book, Simeon and Levi are rightly angered because a Canaanite takes advantage of their sister. Their response, however, is completely disproportionate to the extent of the offense. They lie to the Canaanite. When the Canaanite is vulnerable, along with the rest of the men of the city, they go in and they kill all the men of the city. They take all the women as captives and the children and the possessions, and they take them to themselves. And so when Jacob speaks his words of blessing or assessment to these two brothers, he highlights their fierce anger and curses it for their cruel wrath. And he says, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This works out in two interesting ways in the history of Israel. Simeon becomes the least of the tribes in terms of numbers later on in Israel's history. Levi... Jacob's curse is fulfilled. They receive no inheritance of land. But what does God do with the tribe of Levi? God appoints them to be the overseers of the tabernacle and later of the temple. And so even out of their sin, God takes their zeal and turns it from a sinful anger and a sin sinful zeal in the person of Levi himself to the sort of zeal that stops God's judgment through plague when the people are committing adultery and immorality later in Israel's history, to a, a tribe that is specifically focused on serving God in the context of this place of worship. And so once again, we see God's grace, despite their sin, 
continuing to fulfill the blessing that God had outlined for them. Well, if Reuben's not going to be the firstborn, and Simeon and Levi do not have preeminence because of their sin, then are there any of the children of Leah that will have a place of prominence in the nation of Israel? That brings us to verses 8 through 12. Judah. Judah was not the son that we would have expected God would pick to have a position of leadership among the tribes of Israel. He wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't even the secondborn. He wasn't even the firstborn of one of Jacob's other wives. He was the fourth son of Leah, the youngest son of Leah. He's not a person of particularly noble character that we see from Genesis 38 and that we saw in the chapter before that, or Genesis 39, or even that we saw before that with regard to Joseph and the plot to kill him. He takes advantage of his brother. He's the one who originally seems to want to kill Joseph and then causes the other brothers to sell him into slavery. We see God having changed his character somewhat by the time that he meets Joseph again. We saw that previously. And yet, despite his character flaws and despite his unexpected position in terms of who's got the right to inherit, he has the longest section almost of the sons of Jacob with regard to what God is going to do through him and through his descendants. This idea of conquering, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. This idea of rulership, your father's sons shall bow down to you. This idea of fierceness and might in verse 9 with regard to being like a lion. This idea of rulership again in verse 10. The scepter, the ruler's staff, the obedience of the peoples. And then this idea of blessing and abundance with the idea of the, the foal and the donkey's colt and the wine and the grapes and the milk and all of those sorts of things. An outpouring of God's blessing on him and on his descendants. Ultimately, I think these things find their fulfillment in Christ, the greatest of the descendants of Judah. But it is interesting that even in the blessings that Jacob gives, though he would desire for Joseph to be the preeminent one among his sons, as he speaks, I think under God's guidance and direction, these blessings to his sons, Judah is the one who receives this preeminence. Now, Joseph receives reward and acknowledgement, but Judah is the one that is going to have leadership among the nation of Israel, from whom Messiah will descend, and who receives the honor in those ways. Obviously, there's the other sons who are described in verses 13 through 21, and for sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of those. There's significance in what Jacob says about them in light of their later history, but I want us to look at now at verses 22 through 26. Joseph's blessing is emphasized in terms of prevailing despite difficulty. He's a fruitful bough by a spring whose branches run over a wall. There's this idea of attack. And yet, uh, the, the imagery shifts from that of a tree that's fruitful to the imagery of a soldier who's being attacked, but who is strengthened by God to have victory. The idea of God helping, and then this outpouring of blessing in verses 25 
and 26. How does this work out in light of the later history of Israel? Well, by the time you get toward the end of the Old Testament, Joseph's son Ephraim, his youngest son ironically, his name has basically become synonymous with the northern tribes of Israel. So even though they each obviously still have their own names, they are sometimes just summarized in the Bible as Ephraim because he had come to that position of preeminence among those ten tribes of the north. Does he receive the ultimate blessing of being the heir of the Messiah? No. Do his distant um, offspring, descendants, serve God as they ought? No. Unfortunately, by the time we come to the minor prophets, uh, I had opportunity to, to teach for Pastor McLaughlin uh, from uh, the book of Hosea. And at that point, what is God's assessment of them? You're wicked. Judgment is coming. The same is also true for Judah. Some years later, God also has to punish them. The entirety of the nation has forsaken God. But we do see a waning in the course of time of the preeminence of Joseph. And I think that this is where Joseph, or J Jacob's purpose and God's purpose coincide and then diverge. In other words, Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest of his brothers. And Joseph, more than any of the rest of them, seems to be faithfully serving God. And so God does not disagree with Jacob's blessing on Joseph, and God does not circumvent Jacob's blessing on Joseph. But God's ultimate purpose is not for Christ to come through Joseph, not for ultimate leadership and authority to come through Joseph, but rather for Joseph and Joseph's family to have a position of preeminence for a period of time in light of his faithfulness and his obedience and his service to God. And God honors that, and God fulfills that, and Jacob's blessing reflects that. The reason that I talk about the things in this passage in light of later things in Israel's history is to show that it wasn't just Jacob coming along and talking to each of his sons, and he says, hey, good luck with that thing that you're doing. Hey, I hope everything goes well. There's an element of God's authority that stands behind the words of what Jacob is saying here. And yet there's also the reality that God's purpose is able to overcome some of the sin, like of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and others, that Jacob saw because God had a greater purpose and changed and transformed and worked through these tribes despite themselves. And so I think it's important for us to keep those things in mind as we look at these blessings of Jacob in chapter 49. We went last week in Genesis 50 from verses 1 down through about verse 14. We did not go to verses 15 and following, which is sort of the more famous part of Genesis chapter 50, particularly verse 20. Jacob has died in chapter 50. Joseph has buried him. They've gone down up to Canaan from Egypt. They've buried him. There's been this great procession with all the nobles of Egypt. The Canaanites marvel at it. They call the name of the place the weeping of the Egyptians to commemorate what has taken place. They all return to Egypt. Now Joseph's brothers are terrified. They probably thought, and their words reveal this, the thing that has kept Joseph from attacking us up to this point is 
Jacob's still been alive, and Joseph doesn't want to dishonor his father by killing us while Jacob is still alive. But now Jacob's dead. We're in trouble. We're at his mercy. He's at a high position of the land of Egypt. What are we going to do? So, they appear to make up words from their father in an attempt to persuade Joseph. Your father charged before he died, verse 16, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of their brothers and their sin, for they did wrong. What was actually standing behind this acknowledgement of their sin? I think God had convicted them and helped them come to terms with the fact that they were sinners. They had sinned. They had done wrong to Joseph. And they had sort of whispered about it in the context of all of the events that were puzzling them before Joseph reveals himself. But here they finally come right out and they say, Joseph, we've sinned against you. They, they portray it as being the words of Jacob, and perhaps Jacob did say that, but it seems far more likely that this is something that the brothers had come up with in an attempt to win Joseph's favor. And yet I think there is an element of genuine repentance here. They knew they had sinned, they were acknowledging this sin, and they're casting themselves on his mercy. What's Joseph's response? Anger? Gloating? Joseph wept. Why does Joseph weep? Perhaps Joseph weeps in part because he remembers all of the sorrow that's taken place over the past few decades. Perhaps he weeps because his brothers still don't understand. The text doesn't tell us why he weeps. But it does tell us that this attitude of weeping is certainly not the attitude that we might be tempted to have of either gloating, finally they've admitted what they've done wrong, or of anger, and now I'm going to come after them. He seems to receive their words of pleading. Then they come and they say, we're your servants. They fall down before him, verse 18. If the, the plea for forgiveness wasn't enough, then maybe if we offer ourselves as his servants, like the Egyptians had done with Pharaoh in exchange for the grain, maybe that will turn away any wrath or anger he might have. Notice Joseph's response. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? This is a profound statement for us to consider. Because many times in life where we go wrong when it comes to the sin of other people and our attitude toward them is because we think we are in God's place. In God's grace, Joseph had the insight to recognize you did wrong to me, but I'm not ultimately the one you offended. You sinned against me, but it's not my wrath you need to worry about. I'm not in God's place. Hopefully he would have realized this by now, but, but he lays out what has taken place. You meant evil against me. Yes, you sinned. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
What we see in that phrase is something that sums up the book of Genesis very well. God's blessing, man's sin, God's grace. God's blessing prevails over man's sin. It's not an excuse to say sin is okay. Joseph says, you meant it for evil. It's not an excuse to say, well, everything worked out in the end, so happily ever after. Because in life it's not happily ever after, and the effects of sin don't magically disappear just because a few people say a few things. And yet, at the same time, God's purpose overcome, overcame the brother's evil intent in order to accomplish good not only for them, but for thousands of other people in the land of Egypt, and perhaps in the land of Canaan as well, who were able to come and buy food and for life to be preserved. And we've already talked uh, in previous chapters about the parallels between this and what God does in Christ, but I'll just highlight them again briefly. God used Joseph to preserve his people in terms of their physical needs and in a much greater way God has used Christ for us to meet our need for forgiveness of sin and yet we see here in Joseph a picture of the forgiveness that we will later see in connection with Christ. Joseph's brothers had done wrong to him, schemed against him, sought to kill him, actually sold him into slavery, forgotten about him for years and years, and he forgives them. Jesus bears our sins, all of them, not just the few that Joseph's brothers committed, but all of the sins of the people that he comes to save. He bears them, and he forgives them, and he doesn't forgive them by sweeping it under the rug and saying, well, it's okay. He forgives them by dying and paying and satisfying God's wrath in their place. And so when we see Joseph forgiving his brothers, knowing what we know of the New Testament, we ought to see echoes and anticipation of Jesus forgiving sinners in the New Testament. We ought to be thrown back to the point in our own lives at which we first started to trust in Jesus and experience that forgiveness of sin and all that comes with it. Things like, if you've been forgiven, forgive others. If you've been forgiven, don't keep sinning. If you've been forgiven, tell others about the forgiveness that they can have. All of these sorts of things ought to flood through our minds when we see the example of Joseph's forgiveness. And so it's easy for us to take Genesis 50 and verse 20 and make it this trite little phrase, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, it all worked out in the end, it's all good. But see the unfolding of God's plan in the book of Genesis from the beginning to the end of the book. God's blessing is conquering the foolish going astray of people. It is overcoming the sinful actions of people so that God's purpose prevails. And God's salvation moves forward and it keeps pushing to that day when the Messiah would come in the person of Jesus Christ and fully and finally deal with sin in a way that even Joseph, in his forgiveness of his brothers, probably couldn't anticipate fully. 
And this book also sets us up for the next book. We'll get to that in a moment. Look at verse 21 before we get there. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Simeon, Levi, Reuben, Judah, all the rest of you guys, I've forgiven you. And not only have I forgiven you in the sense of I'm not going to come after you and take you out, which is possibly what you deserve, because in the spirit of Genesis 9-6, by uh, if someone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Though they did not actually carry that out, that was certainly the purpose of their hearts. So there's perhaps an element where it could be argued that's what they deserved. Not only am I not going to do that, and then we just sort of go our separate ways. So think about this. Jacob and Esau, their reconciliation is, all right, we come together, we're glad to see each other, and then the implication of the text is, and we go live in our separate places and we don't really have much contact with each other except when we come back together to bury Isaac, right? So they're still like far apart from each other. Joseph says, not only am I not going to attack you, not only are we just going to sort of live in our, go our separate ways in peace, I'm going to watch out for your kids, provide for them, meet their needs. We're family. So if you were Joseph, would you be willing to say, I'm not in God's place? Would you be willing to say, here was your purpose, but here was God's purpose? Would you be willing to say, and not only can we be at peace, as in we're not attacking each other, but we can have somewhat of a close family relationship because of what God has done. And that's a pretty astounding thing for Joseph to say in light of all that we've seen in the last 13 or so chapters. I said that Genesis sets up for Exodus. It sets up for Exodus because in verse 25, Joseph said, God will take care of you, carry my bones up from here. How does that set us up for the book of Exodus? Because Joseph believed God was going to keep his promise. They weren't going to stay in Egypt forever. Joseph didn't want to be buried in Egypt. Joseph said, set my coffin over there. When you guys go, take me to Canaan and bury me in the land of my fathers. Because you're going to go. God's going to take you. And we come to the book of Exodus, it seems like that's the furthest thing from happening. But God's going to keep his promises for the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, just like he kept his promises for the people in the book of Genesis, just like he keeps his promises for us today, because God is a God who is the same, who doesn't change. One last comment on this idea of blessing. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph got to see not only his children, not only his grandchildren, but it seems like his great-grandchildren. God blesses him not only with power and authority, but also with long life. 
And even though we do not remember Joseph for being the ancestor of the Messiah in a physical sense, in the way that we are sons of Abraham, if we have the same faith as Abraham, we are also descendants of Joseph when we express the same kind of faith and trust in God that he did. Not in a family tree, genealogy kind of way, but in the parallels between the sort of faith that God was pleased with in Joseph and that God would be pleased with with us as his people today. So, when it comes to sin, are we confident in God's ability to deal with sin? Sometimes we look at people who sin and we're like, yeah, they're never going to change. But look at what God did in Jacob's family. A lot of that was pretty surprising and unexpected, right? Look at what God's done in your own life, and a lot of that's probably surprising and unexpected too, right? Obviously, there are balances to that hope and optimism about people changing, right? Sin is deceitful. Sometimes we think we're done with something and we're not. Romans says we shouldn't keep sinning more because there's more grace, because that's a twisted and a corrupt way of looking at it. But we ought to have hope and assurance and confidence that God can prevail over sin. So when we sin, deal with that sin, move on, and look for God to continue to work. Don't wallow in that sin and lose hope. But when it comes to God's promises... Are the things that you know of God's Word from the first 17 years of your life, like Joseph, or from however long you've been in church, are those things enough to sustain you in the difficulties of life? Because Joseph only heard about God for the first 17 years, and then he was on his own. And then we come to the end of the book, Genesis 50, and he still trusts in God. So sometimes we feel like, well, you know, you have to grow up in church and you have to take all these classes and you maybe need to get this degree. Or Joseph's a teenager, goes to Egypt, still trusting God more fervently in Genesis 50 than he did when he left home, despite having basically zero input, spiritually speaking, for decades. So... Do you have that same kind of strong faith in God's promises? So many times we feel like we just need to know more. Give me a little more. I want to know what's coming down the road. I want to know more facts about the Bible. What are you doing with the truth about God that you already know right now? Do you have confidence in God based on the promises that you know right now? Because that's what sustained Joseph for all those years in all those things knowing God's promises, seeing God work, and interpreting life based on God's good character instead of on a selfish perspective that just says, I deserve better, what did you do to me, God? So, by God's grace, may we follow Joseph's good example, 
May we see as we look back over the whole book, God's hand of blessing that didn't just stop at the end of the book of Genesis, but continues throughout the Bible and continues and extends in our life today because the same God who is the God of Joseph is the same God who is at work in our lives today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the lessons that we have seen from this book would continue to affect the course of our lives in coming weeks and months, that you'd bring these truths to mind again and again, that they would be foundational for our understanding of who you are. As we study other books of the Bible, we see the connections of what you were unfolding in your purpose and in your plan. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you most of all for Christ and the salvation that he offers to us by his own blood a forgiveness that, although Joseph's forgiveness was amazing and wonderful and hard to comprehend, the forgiveness of Christ toward us as sinners is far greater. I pray, Lord, that we all here today are experiencing and knowing that forgiveness. I pray that you would help us to live in light of it and serve you as part of this great plan that you are unfolding in the course of history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.